Amen. A few years ago, I had, I had kind of a funny conversation with a Marine after the service. Uh, Troy Black, who is currently the Sergeant Major of the Marine Corps, was attending our church at the time, and, and he had just out, found out that he had been named Sergeant Major of the Marine Corps. And um, I just, the service was over, and I was chatting with him, uh, with Troy, a little bit after the service. And after he walked away, a, another Marine came up and said something to the effect, I've seen that guy at Pillar the past few years, and I had no idea how important he was. Now, of course, important is certainly a rel- relative term for any of us, isn't it? But it reminded me that sometimes, without a proper introduction, you may not know who you're talking to. In a sense, that is what John's trying to do in John chapter 1, is he's trying to do something here at the beginning of his gospel by introducing us to Jesus so that we don't miss out on how important he is. Now you're here today, so my guess is you've got some sense of the importance of Jesus, but, but for all of us, I think it's, it's really easy for Jesus and what we know about him to become so familiar that we miss out on moments of awe and wonder, moments of authority, a sense of the greatness of Jesus, of exactly what it is that we're celebrating as we enter into a season like Christmas where we are awed by the fact that God has taken on flesh to dwell among us, and he came for us to be our light and our hope. And, 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 you know, we can so commonly talk about Jesus here in church culture and in our culture beyond in ways that really bring him down to earth appropriately. But, but I'm worried that, that we too often become so familiar in talking about Jesus that we see his humanness and we miss his divinity. We miss a sense of who this, this person really was. And in this passage, John wants to make sure, before we talk about the details of the Jesus who walked among us, that we get properly introduced to the Jesus who created us. And so there's just kind of a main idea running through these verses is that Jesus is the everlasting light and through him we actually can find our lives. Everlasting means that he goes back into time for eternity and continues in time for eternity. And here we see ourselves introduced to Jesus as the everlasting God. And John wants us to understand that that has the ability to shed light on your life. When we see Jesus as the everlasting light, we have the ability to see ourselves. C.S. Lewis has this incredible quote from his book, The Weight of Glory, where he's actually talking about Christianity and its doctrine in general, and he says, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else you know the sun isn't something we often just look into (laughs) we know it's there we could look into it and that's just what weird people do who want to lose their eyesight but the truth is the sun gives light to everything else that we're able to see. And, and, and in this quote, you could substitute Jesus in here as our light of the world for the word Christianity, and it would mean the same 
thing. Jesus is both the light that we see and we can look upon, but only when we've seen Jesus in the light of who He is are we able then to see ourselves. And He is the light that can help us see everything else in our life as it truly is. And so we see three things in this passage about Jesus through this introduction that show us how He is the everlasting light and how we can find our true lives through Him. The first thing that we see actually in this passage is that He is the light from the beginning. He is the light from the beginning. You notice in verse 1 we get this very famous phrasing, in the beginning was the word. If you're familiar with the Bible, that's not a new phrase. In the beginning, we read it in the opening chapter of Genesis 1. In the beginning, God. You see, it's not just saying that God sort of started to exist, but when there was a beginning to everything that we know, everything that we understand, God was already there in the cause of all the other things that exist. And, and we get that in the first chapter of Genesis. And in here, when we want to get introduced to Jesus, John introduces him saying, by in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. Now we know that that's John's designation here in the early part of these verses for Jesus, the Word, because in verse 14, which we're going to look at in a few weeks, he says, and the Word became flesh and dwelled among us, and that's who Jesus is. He's the Word that became flesh. He's the light from the beginning. So John begins his introduction to Jesus by going back before creation, he wants us to recapture the sense that our story, whatever it is you're going through, our situation, whatever circumstances you're facing, are not the most dominant thing in reality. They're not the, thing, the biggest thing going on in the universe, no matter how we feel. Who is Jesus? And how, how far back do we really need to go to get a sense of who he is? Well, John's answer is that he predates the beginning. When there was a beginning, he was there. You know, it reminds me, sometimes when I'm talking about Pillar Church, I'll talk about how Clint planted the church, but, you know, I was there in the beginning. That means before there was a Pillar Church, you know, I was around with it, thinking about it, hearing about it, knowing about it. There's sort of a being there in the beginning that predates even before we began meeting and thinking and any of this was a thing. This is the sense of what we get when it says, in the beginning was the Word. There's no time you can go back to when He wasn't present, working there. It's a way of saying when, there was a begin when the beginning of everything took place, you know in everything that was coming into existence, the divine Son of God, the Word, as He is described here, was present. He's the light in the beginning. One of the first things that Genesis chapter 1 says that, that is a part of God's creative act is that He spoke into the darkness and said, let there be light. That He is the source of all other light. That He's able to speak and make it come into existence because He Himself is the true light, the everlasting light, the source of all light. You know, when we think about this beginning, uh, I, I, I've been thinking about it this week, in the early part of the last century, the dominant view of the universe was what was known as steady-state theory. And what it really meant was that the universe exists, this is how 
Philosophers and scientists and astronomers try to think about it. The universe exists in a steady state that is sort of eternal. Like, what is the base level thing that really exists? The answer is the universe and what is there. And there was this steady state theory. It theorized that the universe was eternal and existed as a steady state. In John's language, in the beginning was the universe. That's what was there. But then in the early part of the 20th century, Einstein's theory of relativity and discoveries made with, in astronomy that resulted from the Hubble Space Telescope forced astronomers to a different concept which became known as the Big Bang. Now, sometimes in Christian circles, just that terminology gets a bad rap, but in the broadest sense, Big Bang just means big things happen at the beginning, Okay. And, uh, and, and astronomers, looking back, they go, there, there was something that threw this into, into action, which, for lack of a better term, meant that the universe as we know it, the things that exist, had a beginning. They didn't exist in a steady state. They weren't on a cycle. They started in a particular time in the past. And time began. Things began. And that beginning was sudden and powerful prompting the very important question, what was there to cause such a beginning? What is everlasting? You see, Robert Jastrow, who was the founder of NASA's Goddard Institute of Space Studies, put into words the the significance of these discoveries in the 20th century. It shifted, and, and, and people recognized the significance of these discoveries. And he said it this way. He said, Now we see how the astronomical evidence leads to a biblical view of the origin of the world. The details differ, but the essential elements in the astronomical and biblical accounts of Genesis are the same. Do we have this up on the screen? I think I've got a quote up here. Let's read along with it. Yeah. And so he says, The chain of events leading to man commenced suddenly and sharply, at a definite moment in a time, in a flash of light and energy. And in case you missed the significance of that, he goes on then in another paragraph to say what it means. Next slide. He said, astronomers now find, this is what they were forced to reckon with, Astronomers now find that they have painted themselves into a corner because they've proven by their own methods that the world began abruptly in an act of creation to which you can trace the seeds of every star, every planet, every living thing in this cosmos and on the earth. And they found that all this happened as a product of forces that they can't hope to discover. That there are what I or anyone would call supernatural forces at work is now, I think, A scientifically proven fact. There you go, my friends. Trust the science, as they say. (laughs) Jastro helps us answer one of the fundamental questions that every human person has to intelligently answer. And you have to answer this today. You've already got an answer that you're living by. Is my existence fundamentally built on impersonal chaotic forces or is my existence built on personal and purposeful God like fundamental to everything that happens there's either 
impersonal chaos at rock bottom? Or there's a God who had a purpose, who brought everything into being. Those are the only two choices. And John is introducing us to Jesus, and he weighs in on this question. And by doing, he tells something about Jesus that we need to know if we're going to entrust our lives to following him. The person we know as Jesus predates his own birth. He was there in the beginning. Look at the three things John says about Jesus as the everlasting light. The personal God who from the beginning made all things. He calls him the Word. Now the word translated, the word, here in your New Testament is a really important word to understand. It's the Greek word logos. It means something like core rational blueprint logos you can think of the word logical logical principle you know you could think of logos as the rational thought behind everything now greek philosophers had used this term logos in contrast to another word the word chaos so you had either logos organized, rational, purposeful, or you had chaos, which is irrational, impersonal, not purposeful, and the contrast was there, and the question always was, which was first and which is fundamental? Logos or chaos? They would debate, and the beginning was chaos, and conclude that existence is fundamentally irrational. Or like Heraclitus, they would say, in the beginning was the Logos. John is actually saying the same thing a Greek philosopher said 600 years before, but he's saying that Logos is Jesus. That's what he's doing. And he says that here. He says, in the beginning was the Word. And then he makes the case that order is fundamental, John does to the universe. There's purpose underneath what is happening. John identifies that order here and says that the Logos is what came to us when Jesus was born. What's born into the world, the the purposeful underlying power and mind of God has come into human form and walked among us. He's revealed the glory, the power, the intelligence, the wisdom, and the beauty of God by taking on human flesh and walking with us. He calls him the Word. He says that the Word was with God. You notice that. Not only does he call him the Word, he says the Word was with God. Don't run past that. Here we are shown that there are personal relationships within the Godhead. We know from the rest of Scripture that God is one and consists of a relation of three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit who share in the divine nature and relate to one another in a special unity of three persons, the tri-unity, the trinity, that, we, that is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are three persons, one God. And here we see that the divine Son, the second person of the Trinity, is present in this divine relationship that is everlasting. Before there was ever anything created, there was community. Relational love that dominates the way that God Himself exists. And He says, in the beginning was the Word, and that Word was with God, But in case that would confuse us to say, how many gods? He said, the word was God. (laughs) He doesn't want to confuse us theologically to talk about multiple gods. He wants to make it clear. He says that he was God. 
There in that relationship, even prior to his birth into creation, Jesus was and always forever will be God. You see, fundamental, listen, the reason all of this matters, if you sort of, you know, fell asleep during the academic explanations. Why does this all matter? Because fundamental to Christianity is the very clear belief that when you see Jesus, listen to his teaching, consider his claims, and believe on him, it's God himself you're listening to and believing upon. He's God. The logos, the brilliance behind the brilliance of the universe, he's not just a human teacher, not just a moral philosopher, not just a folk hero. God has come. Jesus is God and has wisdom, purpose, and power that is older than the world. That's who he is. That's who we meet when Jesus is introduced to us. Now practically for you, is that how you listen to Jesus? Like, what does that mean? Like, when you hear Jesus speaking in the Gospels, his instruction, his explanations, his purpose, do you hear him as the God of the universe who has created all things, who long before anything else existed, he was the brilliance, the logos behind the universe, and you think, that is who I'm going to listen to? Is his voice the ascendant and primary voice in your life? You see, I fear we would fall into the fashion of the day and believe that everyone's claims and thoughts about what matters are the same, but Jesus is the everlasting, eternal light, and what he says stands above and apart from everyone else. When you listen to Jesus, are you listening to God? Do you hear his words, his instruction, and see his example as that of God Himself? Do you relate to His authority and humble yourself before Him as the God that was in the beginning? There's no other way. Some of us have too many voices in our life. And this Christmas needs to be a time to tune our ears and hearts to one voice. One voice the voice of Jesus, and let what he speaks into our life be what we rely on for our future and our hope. For some of you, the best thing you could do this December is figure out how you could fix your heart and mind on the Jesus in the Gospels. Hear his voice. Think about what it means deeply for your life. Listen to his instruction as though it has authority. And that it's not just the words of another man, another person. It would be life transforming for you to hear him that way, to see him that way. He's the light from the beginning. The second thing we see is he's the light in creation. Verse 3. Verse 3 says, all things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. Not only is he the everlasting light, he's the light that brought about creation. Here John wants us to not just think of Jesus as there in the beginning, but that he was integrally involved in all the details of who we are and where we find ourselves. He's the brilliant expert and engineer behind the order of the universe. 
Verse 3 makes a simple point about Jesus when it says there that all things were made through Him and without Him nothing was made that was, has been made. And so we see that Jesus is, the, is an acting agent in creation and it's exhaustive. There's nothing that, that exists that, has, that isn't under His power, control, design, and purpose. In two statements, John expresses the Son of God's involvement in everything that exists. You see, there are two fundamental categories. The things that have not been made. And the only thing that hasn't been made is God. <laughs> then there's everything else. So you got two categories. Those that have not been made exist on their own. That's God. And God stands alone. He's set apart in that. And, and, and Jesus is God. And then there is everything else that came to being Dependent on the creation of God, and Jesus created all of that. He understands it. He designed it. He spoke it into existence. He purposed it. This is who He is. Everything is dependent on Him. It's all through Him. He's the agent of creation. Nothing that was made exists in any other way except through His design. He has Lord and mastery over all things that exist because He is their maker. Now, listen, I could spend hours describing the masterful order of the universe that displays His brilliance, and I have in other sermons in, in the past, but let's just focus in on one thing that He's created, one factor uh, of creation for a moment with a little bit of focus. Blood clotting seems insignificant. That's why I picked it. Nobody today, a show of hands, who woke up thinking about blood clotting. Maybe a parent with a child with a bloody nose. Blood clotting, it happens to all of us without us thinking, without us making it work. This is from an article by a biology teacher named Michael Harsh. He says, how does blood clot? Well, when you, get your, when you get cut, your body tries to stop the loss of blood in three ways. First, the blood vessels around the cut contract. Like, who told it to contract? <laughs> Great idea. <laughs> right? Thus decreasing the flow of blood. At the same time, platelets adhere to collagen fibers of the damaged blood vessel's wall. And this produces a temporary plug of platelets. Platelets are just there in the blood, you know, and it's, it starts producing this temporary wall. Third, damaged cells and platelets activate a series of chemical reactions that are known as the clotting cascade. There's this whole cascade of events. Like, if you get real basic, it's about 21 things that happen almost simultaneously that allow all of this to take place. And, and it's a cascade of enzymes reacting you know, multiple of them. And this sounds complicated. sounds easy enough, right? Even at that level, it's amazing to think about it. Your body knows how to repair itself. Have you ever thought about that? If it didn't, think about how dangerous and vulnerable everything in life would be. I mean, that deadly paper cut. But yet we live in a world where so many things can kill us and we don't die. It's brilliant. We, don't, we, we just miss it sometimes. 
But, you know, it's, it's amazing. The, the third thing that was mentioned up there was the clotting cascade, which is this chain reaction of enzymes in your body called factors that allow your blood to thicken, but not too thick, because then you would die, right? But not too thin, because then you would bleed to death and never heal. All of this is happening. And, and I thought I would go ahead and teach you all about that cascade today, because, you know, I'm a microbiologist. Oh, really, I'm just going to read some facts until you're like, I, I can't understand this. Literally, that's what I'm going to do. You ready? Try to keep up. A cut occurs and Hagman factor sticks to the surface of cells near the wound. Bound Hagman factor reacts with another enzyme called HMK to produce activated Hagman. Pre-calicrane reacts with activated Hagman to produce calicrane. Hagman factor, third, also reacts with HMK and calicrane to form activated Hagman. PTA reacts with activated Hagman and HMK to produce the activated PTA. Then there's one called Christmas factor. That's why I picked this. <laughs> Number five, Christmas factor. That's an enzyme. Again, I'm just a theologian. Some of y'all do this stuff for a living. I'm looking down at Lindsay over here. And <laughs> I'm like, you know, you can clean up anything I missed later. But Christmas factor reacts with activated PTA and convertin to produce activated Christmas factor. Anti-hemophilic factor is activated by thrombin to produce activated anti-hemophilic factor. Stewart factor reacts with activated Christmas factor, which, you know, back from step number five. And activated anti-hemophilic factor to produce activated Stewart factor. All they got to get activated, react with one another, stay in place, wait for something else to happen, come back, join together. Number eight, proconvertin is activated by activated Hageman factor to produce convertin. There are 21 steps and I'm not going to read them all to you. Yeah, amen. <laughs> but they, and who knows if I pronounced all that right? Probably not. 21 steps. They all have to work perfectly for a cut to heal. How do we know? Because there's some people with hemophilia who essentially have a deficiency of one enzyme and cannot clot at all as a result of it. One of all of those factors. This is how tuned in it is. The blood clotting process is too involved for most of us to even understand. Now listen, it's too involved for most of us to understand which is mesmerizing because Jesus in creation made bodies with hundreds of systems just like it. And that is just our system. Forget all the other factors in the universe. It would take us hours to outline the brilliance of the systems of the forest, the ocean, microorganisms, every animal, the solar system, the galaxies. From the largest galaxies to the single atom, we find purposeful brilliance and order. Logos underlies the universe. And John says that it was all made through Jesus. None of it was made without him. So again, I want to ask you whether you believe this about Jesus. Whether when you think about Jesus and his words, you feel like you're in the presence of brilliance. When he's speaking about your life and what is good for you, do you feel like you are in the presence of creative brilliance? The, the master engineer who put you together, knows how you function, can bring the best out of you. Do you really believe that? Because if you do, it will change how you hear his words. You'll hear his word as the word. I want to ask you, do you believe this about Jesus? Do you believe Jesus to be who John reminds us that he is? And as a result, do you prioritize his voice above all other voices in your life? 
His word as the word. Or the word of many other voices. This is your primary decision in life. Answering the question, you know, we could talk about all kinds of things that you might feel uh, are, are more practical. And sometimes as a pastor, I feel this incredible tension to like get out in the weeds of people's lives and, and help get practical, right? But the most fundamental, important thing that's going to happen in your life is you determining what you believe about Jesus. Whether you're going to hear these words and say, that's who Jesus is. And because of that, I only trust him. He is my hope. He is who I am looking to. He is the light for my entire life. And I know apart from him, as a sinner I deserve judgment but he came into the world to give me hope and I believe it because he's God and he keeps his word that question matters more than any other practical thing you could wish I could talk to you about this morning being reminded of it matters for your spiritual growth today for that really practical decision you have to make this week Where is Jesus in it? What does he have to say? How can he speak into it? Can you get with someone who can help you think about what God in his word has to say about what's going on in your life, what Jesus would have you do? Like that word matters. He's the light in creation. Third thing John does is he gets real personal brings a personal conclusion to this and he says he's the light in the darkness verse four and five some things about the way we talk about jesus can feel pretty cliche i think and are and few are as cliche as talking about him as the light of the world but john helps give it some significance it's important that we take those things that we've become so familiar with and we we wrestle with why they matter and that's what he's doing here In verse 4, John explains that Jesus' life, his life, is our light. In him was life. That life was the light of mankind. That life, Jesus' life, is the light for all of us. It's, It's what lights up what matters. When we look and observe the life of Jesus, we're seeing the things that are most important and true about life. In a world of confusion, Jesus is clarity. In him was life, real life, deep love, moral goodness in Jesus, perspective about what matters, insight into the world around him. This is who Jesus is, understanding about what the future really holds. Jesus lives with perfect light it's all right there in him and that life of jesus has been made visible through his coming and john says it's the light of men jesus life becomes our light that's what he wants to see now there's a reason john says that because he knows that sin has corrupted our world in a way that darkness can become overwhelming and cause us to ask the question is darkness all there is this is, why, this is why John is so concerned that we would discover that Jesus' life is our light because he knows that we spend our lives surrounded by darkness. That there's a pervasive darkness that when we get really honest, shakes us to the core. And we can live avoiding it, live medicating ourselves against it, 
we can live trying to pretend like those dark realities aren't there. I think it's important that we acknowledge it, we name some of it. There's the darkness of war. It can seem like overwhelming darkness. You know, the scenes from Ukraine over the past year, reminders that our world teeters at times on the edge of larger war can fill us with darkness. Think of the darkness of crime, human evil. We're reminded in a never-ending news stream that each day there are people who do things that are dark and unsettling. People who suffer from it. The darkness of abuse. In ways that are not just distant. People experience abuse. Often left hidden but deeply painful and dark. In a room like this, there are people who experienced abuse as a child of all sorts. They live with that darkness day by day. There's darkness. Darkness of regret. We've all made decisions that can leave us in darkness. Squandered years. Poor choices. Hurtful words. Unfulfilled commitments. Unpursued hopes. We carry dark regret that can capture all of our attention at times. There's the darkness of disease looming over our lives as the threat of constant illness. Some of you may be facing it personally and clearly today, or supporting and grieving with someone who is. There's the darkness of grief and loss. The holidays bring out memories of loss and renew. Feelings of grief in ways that no other time of the year can activate in us. The darkness of doubts and religious deceit that separate us from God. There's all sorts of spiritual deception in the world that hinders people from seeing the true light of God's Word in the person of Jesus and it squanders effort and focus on things that will fail in the end. And there's the darkness of our own sin and temptation. Darkness few of us like to acknowledge, but that most impacts our lives. The darkness of that thing about your life you haven't been able to change, make as much progress in. There's a darkness that we can't ignore. And in all this darkness, you may be asking the question, is the darkness all that there is? And maybe some of you this week, had that moment where you're like, is, that, is, it, is this it? Darkness? Disorder? Chaos? Is there any order? Logos? Hope? Well, John, who's no stranger to the darkness, he has an answer in this passage. Jesus, who John is introducing us, is the light that shines in the darkness. That's what he wants us to see in him. And the darkness could not overcome him. The darkness couldn't overcome him. You know, that's what we're going to see 
That's what, if you were to read from here in John's gospel, that's what you would discover about Jesus. And, and John wants to point it out at the beginning so we would think about the entirety of Jesus' life as a light that can't be overcome by the darkness. Jesus knew the darkness. He showed up in the darkness. He lived his life in the same darkness that we face. His calling would take him into the heart of darkness. The cross that Jesus died on was a moment of darkness. Not only was Jesus there at the cross experiencing the the darkness of unjust execution, the Bible clearly tells us that he was there at the cross representing all of us in our sin before the darkness of God's judgment on our sin. That Jesus would actually experience there the darkness of God's wrath and judgment that our sins rightly, rightly deserve. He would experience the darkness in a loneliness that none of us have ever felt. Completely in the darkness. He died in the darkness for our sin and for it to finally be dealt with. Jesus didn't ignore the darkness. If we could understand the gospel clearly, he walks right into the darkness, takes everything the darkness has, on him and on the cross goes beneath it lets it swallow him up takes his very last breath and he says it's finished but that darkness wasn't the end you see some of us right now imagine in our life that darkness is the end Judgment of God, the failures we've had, the emotional turmoil we feel, the disappointment we have with a broken world. And the primary question is is darkness the end? Is that where we're going? Is that what we look to? And is that our future? But before creation, the everlasting light of Christ was shining. And in the darkness of the cross, the everlasting light of Christ was shining. And on the third day, after his crucifixion, the everlasting light of Christ shone out of the darkness and gives light to us. Right now, we have the promise that through Jesus Christ and because of him, there is coming an end to the darkness. And he invites you to faith in him to believe this good news. And his resurrection is the demonstration that the darkness could not overcome the light that was in the beginning the light that made creation in the light that walks among us and shines in the darkness will not be overwhelmed by even the worst thing he's risen the everlasting light his invitation to you is just simply one thing come and believe trust it hope in it bring your broken Dark, regretful, sick, weak, wounded lives before the throne of the God of mercy who alone is everlasting light. And in hoping in Him, you will not only find eternal hope, it's there. 
the light is what's coming in the end. You will find light for your days now. You'll find light for the things you need now. You'll find that His Word is a lamp that can shine on your steps and can order your life and invite you back into His eternal purposes. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says, For the God who said, Let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, I just pray that as we come to the conclusion of our time together, Lord, that you would, by your Spirit, grant hope and faith in the life of those listening, Lord, that we would believe in the everlasting light, the light of the world that has come for us whose light cannot be overcome. And Lord, no matter where we are, Lord, we would learn, we would learn to turn our eyes to that light in hope and faith and know that in doing so, we won't be disappointed. So Lord, I just pray for each person here, Lord, that they would see the light of Christ in this season of their lives. Lord, would you use some of these words to point them even right now to you, to cause them to be filled with worship and awe for Jesus, the everlasting light. And it's in his name we pray.